you can check Christianity, Sufism, Sikhism, Hinduism, Buddhism. The truth is always the thing that sets you free. One of the things that Bitcoin does, perhaps the only real thing it does is propagate truthful information. The truer the information is, the more it connects you to everything. And I, I think the more it liberates you. Satoshi writing software and launching it in an executable form because of the digital worlds that we now have available to ourselves, is it that different than someone writing down a religious revelation 2,000 years ago? I don't really, really think it is. If this is real, if this survives, this changes everything and it changes everything for the good because it's, it's honest and it's fair and it's truthful and it permits greater freedom in everyone's lives. Welcome to the Staying Free podcast. In this episode, I spoke with John Vallis. John is a podcast host and fervent believer in Bitcoin's potential to reshape the future of money. Through his podcast, Bitcoin Rapid Fire, John embarks on a quest to unravel the complexities of the Bitcoin phenomenon, inviting his audience to join him on his personal journey of discovery as he explores the profound implications of this technology. So I've been a fan of Bitcoin Rapid Fire for a long time. It was actually one of my key inspirations when I was starting the Staying Free podcast. So it's definitely a real pleasure for me to have the opportunity to speak to John, as he's someone that I honestly think is one of the deepest thinkers, not just when it comes to Bitcoin, but also wider ideas around philosophy as well. If you enjoyed the episode, please do give it a like and a share. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, make sure you give it a five-star rating in whichever podcast app you're using. If you're new here, welcome. Do give the podcast a subscribe for future episodes. If you want to support my work, you can do that in a few ways. The first is via buying me a coffee. The other is by giving a Bitcoin donation, which you can do both on-chain and via the Lightning Network. And finally, please consider supporting the show and helping me grow by listening on the Fountain app, which is available on iOS and Android. With Fountain, you can share your thoughts on this episode or simply say thanks by sending some stats with a comment. Getting started on Fountain is super easy. You can top up your Fountain wallet with a bank card or any Lightning wallet to start streaming stats and giving boosts. And you can even earn stats just by listening and being an active member of the community. And remember that you can use my code right there in the description to start using Fountain today. Shout out to Piers who boosted 1,000 sats on my Freedom Roundtable 2023 episode with the message, Merry Christmas, gentlemen. Cheers, Piers. Your support is really appreciated. So if you want me to read your comment, then head over to Fountain and leave me a boost there and I'll make sure I read it in the next episode. All boosts, tips and donations are hugely appreciated and it will go directly towards the cost of running the show. All right, let's get into today's episode with John Ballas. John Ballas, welcome to the podcast. It's uh, awesome to uh, get the chance to chat to you. I've been listening to your podcast for a long time now, so it's uh, cool to be meeting um, not in person, but at least uh, digital, digitally. So uh, yeah, welcome. Do you want to just give my um, audience a bit of an intro as to yourself? Sure. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been a while since I've done one of these because as I told you offline, I'm trying to get a book over the line and um, I'm finding that it's kind of scrambling my brain. You know, I'm, I'm, I guess in a certain sense, I'm going so deep that I get lost and I, I'm trying to I kind of, you kind of lose your bearings on what your perspective really is. And so the process of finishing the book is um, basically putting my perspective back together. And I didn't want to do too many of these things 
before that, you know, lest I, lest my perspective comes out like a jumbled up mess. But I, when you hit me up, I was just thought, well, it's been a while and I, I feel like having a good Bitcoin chat. So here we are. Um, introduction. Well, as you said, I, I host a podcast called Bitcoin Rapid Fire and occasionally do one called Portal Orange with, uh, my friends, Eric Hoddle and Rob. And, um, yeah, I've been into Bitcoin for a while and the longer I'm, I'm involved in it, the more fascinating it becomes and the more gripping it becomes. And hence, you know, the, the need to write a book to kind of frame and contextualize and understand it all, or attempt to figure out, you know, attempt to, well, nail down a perspective on it at least, you know, temporarily, cause it's, I'm sure it's going to be a, you know, forever sort of process of understanding it, but yeah, that's the, the basic, basic bio. All right, nice. Yeah, I I really do appreciate you kind of taking a bit of a hiatus from um from not going on pods to actually uh, come on this one because uh, yeah, I didn't realize that you'd not done pods in a while. So uh, so yeah, awesome to to have you here. Um, I guess I've heard a little bit of this story before uh, in terms of your your background before Bitcoin, but it's just something I want to go into for my audience because I definitely think that you've got a bit of an interesting arc to your story in terms of like what you were doing before and then finding Bitcoin and then kind of moving on from there into having a different worldview and definitely kind of changing your life quite significantly through the course of that process. So just for for, for my audience and also for my own um, understanding, like, do you want to just uh, kind of discuss a little bit what you were involved in before finding Bitcoin? Like who was John Vallis before that? You know, what did your life look like? Sure. Um, well, where to be, where to begin really. But I mean, I guess the, the punchline is that I'd always been a, a curious kid, you know, kind of, um, you know, the, the kid who, when, you know, you get together at parties and stuff, like I'd be the one holding up. I remember that this is an, an actual example. That's why I'm giving it to you. But way before Bitcoin, you know, I'd hold up a $5 bill or something and just, you know, be the one on the couch being like, how does this how does this have any value? This is just paper. They can, you know, they printed paper and they put some ink on it and I can get the cheeseburger for it or whatever, you know? You know, and those, those sort of deep questions always really intrigued me. And probably because I had, you know, some interesting influences in my upbringing. You know, my dad just was an avid reader. So he had a big bookshelf full of all sorts of different books that I, I remember the distinct, you know, inflection point for me from being kind of like a kid that doesn't care about reading to like really being interested in, in information and knowledge and wisdom and that kind of stuff was I, it was, we were out on the street playing one day and this girl from the neighborhood who was my age, she, she was like talking about skipping a year in school. And, um, you know, when you're however, 10, 12 years old, like that's, that's an amazing thing to do, right? Like one less year of school, like, you know, so everyone was, well, I was very envious, and I asked her how, and she just, like, how do you just do that? And she said, well, I just read a lot. And that's like, I, then school's easier. And I was like, what? What? Like, what's the, what's the connection? You know, I just it didn't sink. But anyways, I remember going home that day and standing in front of my, my father's bookshelf and just being like, all right, well, let's get some reading done and see what happens. And I never ended up skipping a grade, but I did, uh, you know, it became a, an avid reader and just wanted to know more about the world, I suppose, and ultimately my place within it. And then as a result of that, school kind of became way less interesting. So I was always, you know, wanting to do my own 
study and research than whatever was on offer at school. And then fast forward, um, after uh, high school, I did a year in, in Japan as an exchange student, but I had wanted to go to China. I thought Shanghai would be like going to New York in the early 1900s. And, you know, I was still very kind of obsessed with opportunity and making lots of money. And I thought that that would be the place to do it. And so I did, I did end up going to university and studied history and business, which was just total waste of time. But um, after that, I, I went backpacking in South America for four months and spent six weeks of that, I think, in the jungle, you know, exploring ayahuasca and that whole thing. And then I just bought a one-way ticket from, or I came back and swapped out my, my bag and got a one-way ticket to Shanghai. And then uh, ended up working in finance for a while. That was kind of my aim, like, you know, work in the financial industry in Shanghai. That's probably where there's some good opportunity. And long story short, I just ended, I loved Shanghai, really loved it, but I hated the work. And I realized that, you know, that industry is not about, you know, being a real educated, learned, you know, macroeconomic investment advisor and, you know, really being studious about it all. It's just a sales job. Pretty much everywhere in the world, the offshore market was a little, was less regulated. And that's why those, you know, uh, perhaps there was more opportunities there for someone with no experience and like myself. But uh, yeah, it was just a sales job and I hated it. And the people that were uh, most of the people that I worked with were kind of slimy and I didn't like them. And so I did that for a couple of years and then left. And I'd always had a big interest also in health and wellness. And so, and I was always critical of uh, Western medicine, let's say. Not entirely, but the over application of, of Western medicine, let's say. And I always felt that, you know, diet and lifestyle and all that kind of stuff was very important and was uh, underemphasized in the, in Western medical approach. And so I went to, I did a three-year degree program in natural medicine. And then I ended up, most of that was actually, I did that in China. And then I went back, I'd left for a year and went back to Shanghai and worked at a, um, like a detox clinic, I guess you would call it there. And at first I thought it was great because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't too, hardcore on the medicine front. So I didn't have that like huge responsibility of, you know, treating people's most difficult, you know, ailments. Um, it was something that I felt I could handle, but as is the case with a particular generation of Chinese business people, I guess, um, it was very, 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 had a huge emphasis on money, right? Like making money, which I don't have an issue with. It's just a matter of how much you emphasize that and what you're willing to, you know, what, what, uh, moral boundaries you're willing to bend in order to, to do that. And so some of it was like stuff that I was familiar with that I thought was legit and other stuff, whether it's diagnostics or treatments, I'd like, I didn't think were legit. And I have to, you know, I, I have to caveat that what I just said, you know, and then kind of being critical of a particular Chinese approach to business that, it's kind of the case everywhere. Like the, I'm a huge believer in alternative medicine. I, you know, I think all, all modalities should be available to people so that they can choose the one that's right for them. You know, like Western medicine is amazing at, at like diagnostics and, and acute emergency medicine. It's, it's phenomenal, but it's not great at treating lifestyle illnesses and chronic disease. And 
you know, like 80% plus of things that afflict people are those. And so it's not a real good toolkit to address those things. And so, you know, I think it's all these alternative approaches. I think there's validity to them. But part of the issue is that the system is not um, designed for them to be able to monetize their work very easily. And so what I think happens a lot, of, you know, because it's, it's changing, but they haven't always had access to insurance and, you know, uh, support, subsidies, all that kind of stuff. And so these practitioners had to kind of figure out ways of monetizing their services. And I feel like many of them, of course, not all, but many kind of uh, adopted things that, you know, sounded like they might be interesting, cool, they might work, but probably didn't give them like a rigorous assessment. They just saw like, yeah, this sounds like it makes sense and I can make money off it. And so they integrated into their, to their clinic. So I think everyone or a lot of alternative care providers, at least that I've interacted with, have kind of been guilty of that over the years. Um, so it's not a, exclusively a Chinese thing, but just the, the, the huge emphasis on, on, uh, on money and profit was a, you know, a thing at the clinic that I, I didn't like. And they had me do some things that, you know, I didn't like either. And so after two years, I left that. And um, I had been like a gold bug all the while. You know, after I learned about the financial system um, and monetary history, like, you know, I was like so many pre-Bitcoin. It's like, wow, the, the financial system is totally fucked. And there's no real solution. I mean, and so you had the gold bugs that were like, well, let's get back on a gold standard. And, you know, I knew even then, like, well, yeah, but why aren't we on a gold standard now? And why wouldn't that just keep happening? But absent any better solution, you're like, well, I guess like temporary interludes of sound money or a better, a sounder money system are, is better than a pure fiat system forever. So you end up becoming a gold bug. And then um, Bitcoin came on the scene for me, I think in 2013, I had, uh, my friend and I were looking at DMT on the Silk Road because we were, we were psychonauts as well. And we were like, should we buy some D DMT and see what that experience is like? And we ended up not doing it, but that was my first exposure. And then because it was a, a stateless money, right, a, a non-sovereign money, um, I was really intrigued. I didn't, it wasn't clear to me at the very beginning that it could succeed, right, that it was what it kind of people were hoping it would be. And then, you know, I just kept watching and watching. And, uh, and then in 2018, 19, when I left China and went, moved to Thailand, because uh, my, my wife is Thai, um, that's when I really had a lot more time to, to dig into it. And I had like been kind of deep down the rabbit hole prior to that, but that was when like I just was consumed by it. And then I started the podcast in the fall of 2019 because uh, I needed people to talk to about this. To me, it was like the biggest thing that had ever happened and nobody I knew was talking about it. And so uh, that was the genesis of the podcast. And been down the rabbit hole ever since interesting yeah we have a similar kind of first touch with bitcoin there I, for me it was also dark web related and um for, for me i actually went into it purely for that privacy technology purely to use it as an actual currency and i didn't think about it as um an investment at all and looking back that kind of surprises me because at the time that i was kind of getting into all this stuff i've just kind of started earning like some real money for the first time in my career 
and um i was buying uh you know i was kind of getting into investing and stocks and i was kind of kind of uh you know getting into that finance world and trying to you know get to grips with it all and one of the things for me is i was trying to buy um stocks that i felt i was ethically aligned with so i was saying okay what are the stocks out there that you know, I, I don't have any kind of ethical aversion to, and I was saying, okay, well, if I buy this index, if I buy this fund and and that fund and this um, or this stock or that stock, you know, they might do well, but they're investing in arms dealers and they're investing in you know all this other stuff like war, etc. That I was like fundamentally against. And then around the same time, I was also going down that kind of psychonaut journey myself, and uh, you know, wanted Bitcoin, you know, wanted to to have you know a currency to actually use for this stuff, and um, I didn't actually put two and two together initially, and. I had this Bitcoin sitting in a wallet at one point, which I'd literally, you know, paid for in cash, sending like posting cash to someone that they literally received and, you know, uh, doing it all through like local Bitcoins. And I had the the Bitcoin sitting there and I didn't even think of it as an investment, but I just saw it growing and growing and growing. And I was like, wow, this this is worth way more than, than I paid for it. And a, as that kept happening at a certain point, I thought maybe this is the ethical investment I've been waiting for. You know, I, I didn't consider it to be this ethical investment. I just thought, hey, you know, like it's this this weird and wonderful kind of privacy um, currency. And all of a sudden I was like, that's that's exactly what I've been looking for. I've been looking for the ethical investment. And not only have I found the most ethical investment, I've also found the best performing asset of the previous decade. And, you know, it, <laughs> it, it was strange how that wasn't immediately evident to me. Well, I, I something similar happened to me. I was so like so interested in a non-state money. And you know, I felt that so many of the issues in the world were due to the state's control of money that when I started to realize that that's what Bitcoin was, I was, I was so interested in it politically, I guess you would say. And I, you know, I, I was in investment advising, I'd been investing, you know, like I was really interested in that world too. But with Bitcoin, it was so ideological for me that I kind of, you know, missed it at the beginning to say like, and of course, you know, with every passing year, it became more likely that it could be what it's claiming to be. You know, people have to remember like in 2013, it's not the way you see and feel about Bitcoin today. You know, there's a lot more uncertainty and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I, I didn't, uh, it didn't click for me that like, not only can this be an alternative financial system, but like it can also be an investment, a very lucrative investment for yourself. So. I feel your pain. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, all this um, kind of traveling you were doing at, at the same time, I wonder whether that might have kind of made you, I guess, a bit less loyal to any one specific currency. Because I, I personally feel like, for me, traveling a lot and just, you know, one day you've got, um, you know, one day you've got a load of Thai baht and the next day you go to somewhere else and you're getting Vietnamese dong or whatever it is, you just kind of realize that, you know, the name of that currency is actually very, very unimportant. And, you know, the, the important thing is, does someone does someone respect the value of it is someone willing to accept it for stuff and um you know I, I tend to think that people who travel probably have a much more deep insight to that as people who have who have never traveled because maybe they just see dollars in their in their wallet and they say this is money you know like I, i've never experienced anything else as money and i guess right. you know it, maybe gold um kind of gives you a, an insight into that as well but i think it just when you're constantly traveling around going to different places you realize like a currency is what people want to accept it's what people value it's what they you know um want to receive for providing their goods and services, right? Yeah, it could very well be the case. I think for me in particular, the that seed had been planted, you know, already a long time ago. So even before I did any of my own traveling, like I I had my my criticisms of of money as it was, like the Canadian dollar. Mm -hmm. 
but and you know I, again like back to that point i said about the influences growing up you know so my my dad had a big bookshelf and he worked for a tv and radio and print station on the east coast of canada i'm from newfoundland and uh the the owner of that media conglomerate is kind of like a famous oddball tycoon in in where i come from and kind of eastern canada Anyway, he's, he's a very interesting guy, but the, the long and short of it is is that he sold off most of his radio and TV assets, I think, in the 70s. He had them throughout eastern Canada, so Ontario, Quebec, and Newfoundland, I'm not sure where else. But he, you know, he bought a bunch of gold when the U.S. went off the, the gold standard in 71, because he, you know, for the same reasons we Bitcoin today. And, uh, you know, he would come over to the house because, you know, I think my dad was a CEO and he was the president of, or COO, sorry, and he was president and CEO. And he, you know, I'd, I'd sit at his feet and he would talk about all this stuff, you know, the CIA, gold, UFOs, who built the pyramids. He was like one of those sort of guys, right? But not like one of those sorts of guys in their parents' basement, but like a billionaire or like a very, very wealthy dude. Um, different forms of diet and stuff like that. And so, you know, I would just soak it up. So I think those you know, that, those types of influences at a young age. And he's telling me like, you know, I don't, I don't know what he ended up telling me about gold. If he mentioned anything about fiat and all this kind of stuff back then, but I just remember those topics coming up. And for, you know, for someone with my level of curiosity, it was just like catnip. And so I think the seed was planted early and then, you know, it just, uh, bloomed over the course of years and life experiences and travel, as you mentioned. Nice. That's awesome. I, I think it's great to have, um, I think it's rare, but great to have those people in your life, you know, real alternative thinkers who, oh, yeah. you know, especially at a young age when you're, you know, all you're being fed is things that you're hearing at school, which is a very kind of curated narrative, having someone in your life who's just like, nope, forget all that. <laughs> like, I'm going to, I'm going to give you another worldview. Like, I think oh, that's useful to have. It was so cool. He, he was telling me about these, these elongated skulls he bought on the black market in Peru. And, you know, because he was big into Uf the UFO thing. And, you know, I remember him telling me that. And then years later, I, I traveled throughout Peru and I went and saw this culture that, you know, elongated their skulls. Now, conventional wisdom is that they did it through the technique of, the, you know, these braces on your skull and you continue putting them on and moving them up and it kind of slowly elongates the skull. But it's still kind of, a, as far as I remember, a mysterious culture. Like they're, you know, the whole culture is, is mysterious. But punchline is I don't think they're aliens <laughs> but nevertheless when he passed away uh almost a decade ago in his estate they found this elongated skull and his family didn't know what to do with it so they gave it to the local university so I, I don't know what's happened to it since but so he was you know he pursued his interests and his curiosity wherever they led and I, I certainly respect people that take that approach that's really awesome all right so um so you found Bitcoin, right? We're up to this this point where you've you found Bitcoin, you've you discovered it, and you know it's had such an impact on you. You wanted to start a podcast about it, and you wanted to start talking to people about it. What was it that you feel gave you such a deep feeling of you know I need to go really really like all in on this? Like what is it about Bitcoin? Because I think a lot of us have gone through that. They've gone through that process of finding Bitcoin and being like, wow, this thing has actually changed my life and has the potential to change other people's lives. I want to know um, what that was. For you specifically, why was it so important for you? Well, I don't remember a specific moment. I mean, like we've like we've been discussing, I, th I feel like Hoddle 
friend of mine, who I'm sure most people listening know, he was the second person on my podcast, actually. And at the time, he um, he was just kind of like a, not a troll, but he was just like, he said outrageous stuff on Twitter. And he was kind of, you know, he wasn't, people didn't know him yet. They didn't know anything about him. They just thought he was kind of a crazy person on Twitter. But I would always read his, read his tweets. I'd be like, man, I like this guy a lot. Like, I like what he's saying. And I, you know, so I, I he was going to be the first I believe, but like a day or two before we were supposed to do the show, he wrote me back and said, Hey man, I forgot I'm going to be hung over that day. So we'll have to reschedule. And then, uh, Ben BTC sessions ended up uh, being the first guest on, on my show. But what he said when we spoke was, you know, he felt his story was kind of like the slumdog millionaire story you know, where the, the kid has all these life experiences and they seem random and inconsequential. But when he's on the game show, like all of the answers that he gives, he can relate to something, something he learned or some experience that he had that allowed him to, you know, win the game show. And I feel like the same is true for me, you know, like all of these things we've been discussing, curiosity, criticism of the status quo and the establishment, interest in a variety of different areas, that kind of stuff. It just it's such fertile ground for being interested in something that's really disruptive, something that's like unprecedented or a paradigm shift of some kind, which I think Bitcoin is. So I think, you know, to answer your question, I, I think my interest was just, this changes everything. If this is real, if this survives, this changes everything and it changes everything for the good because it's, it's honest and it's fair and it's truthful and it permits greater freedom in everyone's lives, you know, and all the way, down the rabbit hole, however far you want to go. But those things alone were such you know, almost miraculous answers to me with, you know, in, in relation to the problems that I had been, the, the biggest problems that I had identified in the world. And the ones to, to a certain degree, you know, brought me down sometimes because you look out on the world and you're like, ah, oh, man, it's, I, don't, I don't see how those things get fixed. I've always been someone who knows that it's my responsibility to be happy and content and pursue meaning and carve out, you know, if the world is fucked, you can still carve out your own little world. That's not so bad. But, you know, I'd be lying if I said that looking back on, on my life, you know, from the time I left home till now, there was definitely interludes like pre Bitcoin where my behavior kind of uh, betrayed a certain nihilism or, or apathy or something like that. And it kind of went off the rails and I had to rein it back in. And Bitcoin just invigorated, I guess, my life with a renewed sense of hope for the future as it does for so many. And the energy that that inspires is incredible because, you know, and you could probably visit all the literature on depression and anxiety and, you know, diseases of despair, so-called. But a lot of them is because people look out on the future and they don't see anything for themselves in it. It's not, you know, in some cases, like they don't see a future, like the world is coming to an end. But most often it's like, I don't see a future where the things that are important to me, the things that are meaningful to me, the things that I think are right and true and good are at all represented or valued in the future that I'm seeing, you know, and it causes the future to take on a very gray and dark sort of aura. And you bring that into your day-to-day -day life and it affects your mood, it affects your energy, it affects, you know, the things you apply yourself to, it affects how much you apply yourself, because if the future is just a bag of shit, why do you want to try to 
mine yourself for your for a greater potential you know you the inspiration is not there to do that but when you see that something has emerged that fundamentally changes your view of the future and the degree of hope you have in it and the degree to which it aligns with the values and principles and meanings that you have determined or identified for yourself well then it it's incredibly inspiring right then it really is it's like okay well now it's not gray and dark now it's full of color and light and i think for a lot of people it inspires them to like you know pick up their boots and and go for it and like realize that now the future is worth engaging now the future can be what you thought it was or could be when you were you know a young kid who was you know maybe too innocent and naive about the world but now you know there's a real path towards something a lot better and a lot more aligned with, I would say, you know, fundamental or divine principles, let's say. And I think part of the reason why we see, and this is something that I've been really interested in, but a lot of Bitcoiners, you know, uh, and of course we have to make a distinction there between just people who own and people who are like capital B Bitcoiners, let's say, but they end up really changing their life, changing their behaviors. They, they tend to like dial down or give up destructive behaviors or behaviors that were wasting time or wasting money or were damaging to their health in some way or damaging to their relationships. And they tend to, you know, lean into behaviors that make them stronger, more capable, more intelligent, you know, um, more skilled, you know, basically just more capable of seizing the opportunity that they, they now see on the horizon. And it's transforming these people. And I, I've heard so many of these stories, like uh, people would come up to me at conferences and, you know, I've heard it all basically, but, you know, the worst is obviously, well, like I was suicidal and I, you know, I just, the world was a piece of shit and I was a piece of shit and I, I didn't, you know, what, what's the point of, of all this? And then Bitcoin came along and it, the, as they started to learn about it and the more they learned about it and the more learning about Bitcoin illuminated or elucidated what the problems of the world were and all those things started to come together then they you know they tell these stories of how they slowly started turning things around you know they weren't as hopeless anymore they weren't as nihilistic anymore you know they they were enthusiastic for the first time energized there was something worthwhile to be working towards and all that just starts to change behavior to align to those things and within you know whatever period of time, six months, a year, two years, you know, everyone's different. But you look back and you're like, wow, like I was so different then, then than I am now. Like obviously, you, you, you know, st you're the same person. You, you can empathize and put yourself back in those shoes, but you start to realize that your habits and your behavior and your ambitions for yourself and what you value, that's a big one, uh, has dramatically changed and dramatically changed in a way that seems like it's a big improvement on your life. And so people look back and they're like, wow, I almost don't recognize myself five years ago or whenever that process began. And it seems like almost universally good. You know, I, you, you can maybe be too into Bitcoin and like your obsession with set, stacking sats might have some deleterious effects on your life. You know, it's not like uh, you can stop being conscientious after you you know, start learning about Bitcoin, you're always going to have to be tweaking, you know, your life and, and maintaining an awareness of yourself. 
but it's incredible the the type of change that it's inspired in people. And I would say the same process has happened with me. And when I when I left China and kind of went full time into Bitcoin, um, that's only I guess that was the the big moment for me where I kind of left you know the older version behind and started uh, on the process of you know, building or, or realizing a kind of a, a new version, a Bitcoin-infused version, if you will. I'm interested to know, were you ever religious? No. Yeah. No, not uh, formally. You know, I would go to church with my grandmother at, at Easter, that sort of thing, as a, as a tradition. Um, but my, my, like, nuclear family, my mom and dad and my sisters, we were never religious at all, and we never had religious or theological discussions ever, but I was always very interested in religion as, you know, as far back as I can remember. So I do remember, you know, in my teens reading a lot about the various religions. Buddhism in particular was interesting to me at the time because it felt less dogmatic. And that was one of my, one of the critiques that I felt, uh, you know, amongst the perhaps Christianity and Islam and you know, the Abrahamic face, let's say. But, um, and, you know, the, it's hard to be a psychonaut and not have some appreciation for the so-called spiritual dimension of life. And so I would say that's where I, I landed for, you know, most of my adult life is that, you know, there's, there's certainly something ineffable and mysterious going on, but I don't have the confidence to nail it down as specifically and definitively as perhaps the, the world religions have done. But over the, the last few years, I've dealt much more into those religions, partially in, in, you know, as part of writing this book and doing some research, doing research for the book. And I definitely appreciate them a lot more than I, I once did. I was never, you know, crazy dismissive, like your kind of uber secular type in the world today who just thinks religions are stupid superstitions and we should just leave them in the dustbin of history. That was never me. But... I definitely didn't give them an honest look and really try to see what was valuable and interesting and truthful about them. And uh, doing that effectively now, I think there's a lot of value in them. Yeah, I mean, the reason I ask is because, you know, everything that you're talking about here in terms of that individual journey people go on, you know, when they find Bitcoin and they really say, you know, this, this changes everything for me and it gives them that kind of hope and it makes them assess you know, areas of their life, maybe they become more personally responsible or whatever it is, these things that Bitcoin kind of bring about in the individual, that kind of change. I think there's only really, I think two other things that I would say, um, tick that box, which would be religion and probably psychedelics. And I know that obviously you've, you've kind of gone down that psychedelic rabbit hole, but when it comes to, uh, religion, I think that's probably the other one people would say, right. You know, finding religion, finding God, finding faith, whatever it is that can cause a huge change in the individual. And this is kind of getting into your specialist area now, because I know that you've talked a lot about the nature of kind of Bitcoin and God and, you know, like what, what is God and whether you can, you can have, I guess, features of God within something created by man. And um, I, I guess I'll just kind of open up, up quite generally at the moment, because I know that that's, well, I, I don't know, but I, I'm expecting that that's going to be one of the major themes of your book. So I guess thinking about ideas of, of, of God, what does that mean to you? And also... How do you think that Bitcoin starts to at least, you know, maybe 
I'm trying to not not to be too triggering for people who who are very religious because I understand that when you use words like God, it can be a very um, sensitive subject for people who are who are strong believers in in religion, except etc. But in terms of that um, change that is brought about about by something like Bitcoin, do you think that something brought about by man can have those um, attributes or have the the effect on society like something like religion can? There's a lot there. Um... And this is kind of the territory where I'm still scrambled up because of the book, but you are right. The book is going to deal heavily with, with this question. Um, the first is, of course, you're right. I mean, these sorts of changes have the hallmarks of like a religious conversion, you know, a religious, religiously inspired change. And the first thing I would say to critics is, you know, like, Christianity or, you know, or the mystical aspects of various religions like Sufi Islam or, or Hinduism or Buddhism, nobody has a monopoly on what inspires people to change their life, like what becomes the most meaningful and, and valuable thing to them. You know, so um, in Christianity, maybe it was the, the life of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, and, and that we have to understand too that all of this for everyone is just information. Now, some people believe this is information about events that happened in this, you know, meat space reality that we're in. Other people are inspired by, by stories. Other people are inspired by stories that they believe cohere with something that's even more deeply or metaphysically true. So yes, it's on the surface, it's a, a story. But why does the story have so much resonance or co and coherence or impact with you? And perhaps it's because it's actually, inter you know, it's grafting on to something that's very deeply true. And the way we comprehend it is through story. And perhaps there's no other way um, through, than to do so through, through story and narrative. I mean, even with something like Bitcoin, right? I mean, we, what it is, as we've been discussing, fits into my appraisal of the world. So when I say that Bitcoin, like understanding Bitcoin inspired and invigorated me because I thought things could be fundamentally different, that the future would be fundamentally impacted by this, it's still just information being added to my existing narrative, right? And all narratives are, of course, incomplete. There's many, ought to be many, or, you know, there's certainly many inaccuracies in mine. So when I was a, whatever, 25-year-old, dude and looking at the world and being depressed about it, I'm sure some of those things were relatively accurate, but many of it, much of it probably wasn't. And so it's still just a story I tell myself about the world and I'm intrigued and moved and inspired by Bitcoin because it's something that gets added to that story that fundamentally changes the, you know, the trajectory of it, let's say. And so, you know, my point is just being like, it's all just information. Whatever you believe the source of that information, you know, that's, that's where there's debate. The source is God or the source is man or the source is whatever. And, you know, the God source is obviously more legit than the man source. And therefore, my information is better than your information. Or my information is more true than your information. Maybe, but maybe not. And I think the, it really does all come down to truth almost unfortunately, because it's such a nebulous thing and it's very difficult to nail down. But I think m most people can 
appreciate or just understand on a very basic level that one of the things that Bitcoin does, perhaps the only real thing it does is propagate truthful information. And it seems like it's able to propagate the most truthful information and maintain its truthfulness than anything you know, we've ever certainly ever created and possibly ever had you know, access to. And you know, this gets really in the weeds because it's like, well, what information is in money? Like what, what, you know, what, do we, what information do we ascribe to it? What information is it coordinating you know, between all the different actions and the values behind those actions that people take with and in relation to money? So it's, uh, it's very complex, but I, I think the, you know, to maybe be a little bit too brief on this explanation, but I do think that the reason why it's so transformative and powerful is because rightly or wrongly, people think it's a profound form of truth. And that is always the thing that inspires people, right? And you have throughout all, you, you can check Christianity, Sufism, Sikhism, Islam, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism. The truth is always the thing that sets you free. And, you know, this is a core tenet of all these things. And oftentimes truth is synonymous with the, the God figure in any given faith. You know, like God is, God is truth. God is love. God is union. They're all the same thing on some level that we, we can't really comprehend. You know, and I think that's, if we could nail everything down, like meaning and value and, and all this stuff, maybe consciousness would kind of just stop. You know, I, I think we require paradox to keep the wheels turning almost. We require our own ignorance so that we, you know, we keep moving forward in faith so that we determine what is it the things we want us want to motivate our behavior. What are the principles and the values and the truths that we think are most generative and most beneficial to subordinate ourselves to to direct our behavior? And if we knew everything, right, if, if knowledge was complete, we wouldn't require that. But we, I think the reason, part of the reason why faith is such a central um, concept in a lot of religions is because you have to take that leap. You don't know that if you tell the truth, what's going to happen. You don't know if you prioritize some principle above your own selfish pleasures or aggrandizement. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if it'll be, quote unquote, good for you now, a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now. But if you believe in the truth of that guiding principle, then you act in reference to it with a, a degree of faith because you're going into the unknown future with that as your guiding principle. And I think that's what basically what faith is. But if we knew everything, if things didn't resolve from paradox and somehow we could have complete knowledge and all of that is information and experience is information, why would we do anything? Why would we ever kind of show the power of these truthful principles? I don't think we would, you know, it's, it's kind of, and money, I don't think this is the only reason why Bitcoin is interesting, but we're powerful. But money is another thing. Like if, if there was complete knowledge, if every market participant had perfect knowledge of all things now and into the future, which of course is impossible, but just as a thought exercise, then you wouldn't need money to coordinate everything because people would just always know exactly what they wanted when and who else was, you know, was providing it when they needed it. And that coordinating function that money provides would be 
irrelevant. And so then this is part of the, I wouldn't say frustration, it's almost part of the joy actually, but about pursuing these big questions because you just want answers. Whether you're you know, deep in the throes of a psychedelic journey or you've had your face in the, your head in like the, the big theological works, philosophical works of, of our history, you just, you want an answer that you can nail to the wall. You know, like this is, this is foundational, this is axiomatic. And actually that's probably a bad word because you can find things that, are, that you uh, act as though are fundamental. You need to, right? You need your kind of orienting axioms, but finding like the capital T ultimate truth. Again, I think that's why faith is such a big part of these things because that would mean perfect knowledge and we, we're, we don't have that available to us. So we use faith and in acting as though something were true, we bring it to life. In acting as though truth and freedom and love, you know, th these sorts of things are the most important things, we actually invite them into the world through ourselves. And um, so, and I, I think Bitcoin in being such a profound form of truth, being like the information that we can have the greatest degree of confidence in in the world in terms of its truthfulness one i think is very intimately related to everything i've said so far but at a minimum i think being it it, it, it it's so confronting that it makes you question like well, what is the relevance of you know absolutely truthful information what is the relevance of that and, you, and then you look to contextualize it and understand it and you wind up in the religious or theological territory because that's the only place that discusses absolute truth. You know, this is obviously con contentious, um, but I don't think it need be because it kind of goes back to what we were saying before. Like it, it's all just information. And some people, you know, in Revelation, let's say the various prophets throughout history, the claim is that their revelation is information derived from the entity that we call God. Maybe they're right or maybe they're not right, but it's still just information that we somehow get access to and we ascribe truthfulness to it. And in ascribing truthfulness to it, it, it transforms us. I mean, that's kind of the, that's part of the power of truth, you know, and, it's, and not just like whatever the actual truth might be, but in believing something to be true. It forces you to conform to it. Right? It's like because it's, it is what it is, you know? So you, you're, if you believe it, you, your idea about it is not going to change it. So you have to kind of change and conform yourself to it. And again, I think this is like, you know, that sort of attitude or theme is, is evident in religions, right? Like you, someone has asserted truthful information about the nature of reality, about how you're supposed to act, about whatever. And you can do two things. You can deny it. You can say, I don't believe that's true. And in that case, the information is not going to have much influence on you. Or you can say, I do believe that to be true. And therefore, I'm going to try to align my behavior to it, which means I'm going to subordinate my, my, reason, my motives for behavior to it, right? So instead of saying, well, I'm going to screw you over because I get more money if I do that and I'm in it for me. I'm going to say, 
I'm going to subordinate my selfish drives or my egotistical drives to the notion of truth, to the notion of fairness, to the notion of peace, let's say. And that's going to be the guide for my behavior. So in a sense, the reason why I use the word subordinate is because you're saying, I'm, you know, I'm going to use that as a driving motive, not whatever my selfish drive might be. So, you know, it all just comes down to like, do you believe it to be true or not? Or do you hold it as true? Now, where I think the people who discredit or discard religion kind of get it wrong is that what does it mean that when you hold certain information as true, it results in good and or the best possible outcomes? What does that mean about the nature of how that information that you're holding as true is interfacing or is related to or is coherent with something beyond it, right? A truth beyond it, let's say. And so if you believe that you're going to float in air when you walk off a cliff and you walk off the cliff and you fall and die, well, you could say, well, that, that wasn't truthful information. But if you, you know, conversely, if you believe some information and it ends up and again, there's this, the reason why this is tricky is because like, how do you define outcome as good, you know? And even if you could define outcome as universally good, good now, good next month, good next year, good for all of eternity, you know? So there's a lot of questions here, but the punchline being what I think the religious enterprise has done is trying to hone in on the information that when held as true produces the best outcomes. And we're talking about socially because humans are social creatures and none of this matters if we're not interacting with one another. And so, yes, you know, there's many criticisms to be had in terms of, you know, how those, let's say, power hierarchies within different religious faiths end up becoming corrupted and that power is abused. And, you know, we, we all probably know the history and have certain examples. But again, the enterprise, I think, has been, again, what information, when held as true, produces the best possible outcomes. And then again, how much does that reinforce the truthfulness of that information? And I would say that is the reinforcement. That's, you know, that's the feedback loop that's been running for millennia and saying, okay, what if we hold this as true? What happens? That. What if we hold this as true? That. What if we hold this as true? That. And so you keep, you know, I think human beings for as long as we could ideate, long as we could express ourselves, long as we could represent ideas, We've been trying to figure out what's the most truthful information because truthful information helps us cohere with the world and not just the natural world, but the world that is the people that we interact with, the world that is the, our own mind, our own consciousness. So, you know, I think there's a lot of validity in that enterprise. Again, lots of criticism, but a lot of validity. And so to relate it back to Bitcoin, now we have, you know, seemingly the most absolute, the most truthful, the least corruptible information that we've ever had intersubjectively verifiable you know we know that when when people are using it we're operating on the same set of information and we've never really been able to have that even if you you know i say to you like you're my brother in christ and like that's supposed to mean that we hold similar information as true and we hold ourselves to that information to a similar degree but there's no guarantee right i could say that to you and people have but act differently, not even in intentionally maliciously, but just we interpret that information somewhat differently. And so our actions are different. But when you, 
you know, engage in the Bitcoin network, when you send a transaction, you're verifying the parameters of that information. And there's no way to do like to do it differently. So you know that everyone's opting in and agreeing to the kind of the same principles of that truthful information, you know, when they transact through Bitcoin. And so what does it mean? Well, one, as a, just a practical matter, I think that when we're confronted with something so foreign, you know, that we were confronted with this like form of absolute, absolutely, absolute information or absolutely truthful information or truthful, intersubjectively verifiable information, it just causes you to think if nothing else, it's like, how do I, how am I supposed to contextualize what this is? And again, I think the re I see a, a trend. I think it's actually starting to happen in the broader culture over the last few years, as far as I can tell, but certainly within Bitcoin, that that question keeps grinding on them until they have to say, well, I've never been religious and I've kind of dismissed it, but I, I feel like I need to go into that realm to see if there's any insights to help me contextualize what this thing is in Bitcoin. And I think one of the effects of that has been a lot of people, at least the Bitcoiners that I've spoken to, have been revisiting religious faith of various kinds, you know, and partially, if not largely, motivated by their desire to understand Bitcoin and, and contextualize it properly. And so, you know, my the final point on this is, what does it mean that, I think your question was that it was human created? And I guess part of my answer is like, either... It's all human created information because like it all ultimately came out of a human brain, right? Or none of it is, but we don't really know what that means. You know, like what's the difference between a religious revelation and unprecedented idea that gets implemented in some way that gets implemented into a software protocol? What's the difference? Where, where did that revelation and where did that idea come from and why did it emerge? You know, it's it's a very mysterious thing. We don't really know. And of course, if you if you're kind of dabbled in the psychedelic realm, it's even you probably appreciate that even more because it's like, where did that come from? Like, is is my brain just a receiver? And if it's primed properly, it, it receives certain things. Or do I? How much of it do I generate myself? Are we all just? Do we all just have kind of a a direct line to the numinous or the divine? And if we get ourselves out of the way enough, if we if we orient ourselves, if we align ourselves with the proper and truthful principles enough, do we, do we open up that aperture more and we can receive more of it? What is a spontaneous mystical experience, absent psychedelics or anything like that? You know, so there's so many questions about like human created and what, what that even means. But I would say that, you know, it's Satoshi writing software and launching it in an executable form because of the digital worlds that we now have available to ourselves, is it that different than someone writing down a religious revelation 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, whatever? I, I don't really, really think it is. I think maybe it's just the, there's something really unprecedented in, in how we can verify intersubjectively the truthfulness or lack thereof of information now. You know, there's less trust to put it another way, which is, you know, obviously a big theme in Bitcoin. And um, so again, I'm, I'm trying to 
I'm trying really hard to think about that and contextualize it and put it down in words that might be, you know, uh, comprehensible to, to some people. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah, I guess just thinking about um, that difference there and one I kind of talked about, you know, the difference between something human made and something, I guess, non-human made. I think a good way to illustrate this would be something like gold and gold has actually been called God's money, right? Like people actually will use that term and say gold is God's money. And, you know, this is something that's been used for a long time. A part of me, by the way, actually wonders whether perhaps when gold was discovered and when it was first started to be to be used as currency, I wonder whether they went through a similar thought process at that time. I'm not sure. I'd be interested to know if this is something you, you'd looked into, like whether there was also this kind of almost religious-like theorizing around gold. Um, but, that, but that's just a side point. But I guess the difference there bet- between gold is that gold is something which exists as an element. We can't, you know, just kind of create into existence. It exists in, you know, a obviously within the, the realms of, let's say, our world, our, our globe in a finite supply. It's there. We discover it. It was almost as if it was given to us by some some God, you know, by some kind of deity. And I think that's you, you can understand why it's got those associations. And then you come to Bitcoin and you have someone who basically nobody knows who it is, who is a kind of mysterious person who kind of like, you know, put all of these pieces together and kind of set into motion something which, you know, we're still trying to kind of understand it, but we, but it's happened in recent history. You know, it's happened from an individual, but at least we know, yes, someone's brought together all of this maths and code and they've created this, this thing, this system, which is now kind of, you know, is operating in the world. But it feels very different. You know, gold, it was there. It was just waiting for us to discover it. And you might argue, well, cryptography was there. Maths was there. You know, like that was also there waiting for us to, to discover it. But unlike gold, which could be just discovered in its natural form, Bitcoin required some kind of human intervention to put all of these pieces together to then say, okay, now now this is, now this thing is, is going. You know, it required much more of an intervention from, from people. And uh, yeah, so, so I'm, I'm first of all interested to know your thoughts on that about like whether you know, you've thought about the, those differences between gold and Bitcoin and just, just the actual kind of discovery of those those things. And and uh, and yeah, like historically, whether gold was viewed the same kind of through your research. I do have another thing I want to bring to this, but I'll, I won't um, convolute it too much. I'll just leave you with that one for now. Sure, yeah. It's a super interesting question and I have thought a lot about it. Not, I haven't done a tremendous amount of research on it yet. It's a part of the book that I, it's a section, but I haven't got to it yet. But I mean, I would imagine the answer is yes, that it it, it was similarly inspiring in, in some way, perhaps for, for many different reasons. But I, I you know, I think it, it almost goes without saying that it, it obviously held meaning, you know, beyond its, you know, capacity to facilitate trade or its representation of wealth. I mean, it, like any culture that had access to it usually adorned their you know, holy sites, sacred statues, you know, kings and queens and all that kind of stuff, you know, gold would be a big part of that. And, you know, the simplistic explanation is like, well, yeah, they wanted to show how rich they were. It's like, yeah, probably sometimes in some places and maybe at all all times to some degree, but I, I do think there was something more about it. And I think part of the story here is just its absoluteness, right? Like gold right? Doesn't rust, doesn't corrode, tremendously malleable. And so it it represented the absolute, you know, also shared kind of like the same 
color with the sun, which obviously had relations to, you know, deities and gods in, in the past. But I think more than any, like when we talk about truthful information, we're talking about absoluteness in some sense, right? It's like, why is it so true? Because it can't be changed. And this is kind of, again, the, these, these notions carry over between this and to discussions about God, right? Like God is the alpha and the omega. It's the everything. It's the absolute. It can't be changed. You must submit to it. All of these things. And I think gold was, was probably recognized early on for its capacity to remain itself, for, for its, its characteristic of absoluteness. You know, we also have to, I think it's, we, we probably have a very different default mindset and perspective in the modern world than did the ancient world. I mean, you don't even have to go back that far. I mean, you go back to, you know, uh, whatever it was, 12, 13, 14, 15th centuries and look at like alchemists. And it's not like, and they're kind of considered proto-chemists, right? They're the first to mess around and try to, you know, create, mix together different compounds and create new ones and all that kind of stuff. And one, you know, and we see it through that lens. It's like, oh, they were just kind of like farting around with chemistry and thought they could, you know, make gold or they, they were trying to. And we see it through a very physical material lens, but they themselves and most of the literature on alchemy always talks about how they weren't just trying to get rich. It was a, it was a very spiritual pursuit. You know, they were, they were looking for something far deeper than just more gold, you know, turning lead into gold. And I think if you, you go back even further and the ancients were probably something like that. They wouldn't just see gold and be like, oh, I could trade this for a new mud brick house or, or something like that. I, I feel like they saw in matter and material a lot more meaning than we do today, right? And so they would look at something and they'd say, maybe the best way to put it is, I think they would see, infer, and, and ascribe meaning to coherence, to the similarity of properties between things. And so they'd find this element out in nature and they'd say, wow, it, it looks like it's, it's the bright light, right? It looks like the sun. It doesn't rust or corrode. You can bend it. It can, it can become anything. Like, you know, it's, it's absolute, just like our notion of the sun, just like our notion of God. And so we're going to use that to represent our own godliness or our connection to God or our reverence for God or whatever it might be. And so... The first part is, yes, I think they, it was probably very meaningful to them beyond, you know, as a, as a mechanism for trade. And the other question, we didn't make gold, you know, the universe made gold and we made Bitcoin. And so what does that mean? I mean, certainly we can't really corrupt gold, right? Gold's going to be gold before us, during us, after us. Maybe we can corrupt Bitcoin. And so does that, if we're just purely comparing absoluteness, like, what does that mean? It's an interesting question. But at the end of the day, I, mean, I think, again, back to this notion that everything is kind of information, and it's not, absoluteness is a big one, but the absoluteness is kind of irrelevant if the information can't follow us everywhere where we want to act and interact. Because every time we act and interact, we're exchanging information. And sometimes that information is emblematized or, you know, represented with something like a token, like money, 
Other times we just use words. Other times it's just what we're, what our perception is picking up. But there's you know there's nothing but the exchange of information. And when we're talking about something that we use, when we're talking about a profound truth, let's say that value accrues to truth in relation to its degree of absoluteness. I think that's I think that's true. But its utility is important, right? And so I think the, that absolute information, the more, in fact, you know, kind of alluding to gold, the more malleable it is to how we want to express value and meaning, basically how we want to act, the more valuable it will be. And so even though gold is physically very malleable, and again, you know, that's part of the reason why it became money however long ago, especially in a digital world, in a globalized world, in an increasingly informational world, it's just not capable of having a high degree of fidelity between the actions that it's meant to be using its truthfulness to coordinate and represent. And so I think Bitcoin obviously is. So will gold outlast Bitcoin? I mean, Probably, right? Gold is probably spread out throughout the universe. We don't, you know, it's, it's kind of a hard thing to fully destroy. But in terms of its applicability or useful to us, usefulness to, to us, as a, you know, an absolute form of information or, or like something that can contain truthfulness, the market seems to be deciding right now that, that Bitcoin is a more applicable form of truth for humanity in the stage of development that we're in. And so beyond that, you know, what it means that God slash the universe created big, uh, created gold and humans, which presumably God slash the universe created us, created Bitcoin and what, you know, what the meaning of that might be is, uh, I guess time will tell. Yeah, that's just got me thinking now, actually, like in terms of gold, versus bitcoin there i mean we're told gold you know it can't be created i mean i don't know enough about chemistry to understand whether that's just a temporary um situation like is you know i don't know enough about it to, to, to be able to say like is it possible theoretically to create gold is it possible that it's not actually as scarce as we think and that you know just through some advancement in technology that you could actually create it whereas with bitcoin it seems that unless everything we understand about maths is wrong, that will never be possible. It's not It's not a matter of, you know, this is a temporary state and that one day in the future, you know, perhaps like we'll have a different understanding of maths or cryptography. Maybe even that is possible as well. I guess like all of these things possibly still have uh, question marks there. But you're right. I mean, I guess the different perceptions of gold uh, versus Bitcoin in all of these ways, the way that we think about these things, things that are kind of like beyond our control, things that are, you know, we we can't, affects them and like you like you say you know we are subordinate to them like how we consider those things does seem to kind of get into that really philosophical or even religious territory and the other thing i was going to mention before is this also kind of has me thinking about ai because you know some people talk about ai as like is is there a possibility that we create this ai and it's so powerful that it ends up kind of overwhelming us like we are so kind of small in comparison to it in terms of our, our ability to really kind of like think about the world is it possible to create an AI, an AI that ultimately overwhelms us and ultimately kind of is our own demise and um, in a way 
talking about Bitcoin and, and you know the way that you talk about Bitcoin especially it's almost like viewing Bitcoin as the the opposite of this you know Bitcoin is like perhaps the singularity which creates good in the world and other people you know I'm not saying it's necessarily true but they might view like AI and say this is the singularity which sends us down a dark path and I wonder whether again this is another kind of religious question I guess because if you if you zoom out you could just say is it possible for civilization for life for existence to discover something which causes it to unexist like is that even possible within the, within the realms like within the kind of like the the rules of the universe is it possible or equally is it inevitable it goes in the other direction is it inevitable that we discover the things that continue our existence and that that is a continuous process maybe this time it's bitcoin it's the thing we need to discover at this point in human history but perhaps you know you cycle on time for another you know 400 500 years or 400 500,000 years or whatever it is and perhaps there's something else that we need to discover in order to continue our existence and that that is an inevitability you know it's, it's almost like some kind of sense of determinism in a way perhaps we're witnessing determinism you know take its course by all of these discoveries yeah i mean who the hell knows right i'm i'm inclined to think that you know and this will be a statement in relation to or it be a kind of a contentious statement in relation to bitcoin but you know my, my just i don't think true randomness it might not really exist. It might just be a matter of what scale, how far, how close you are from, from something. You know, when we get into the realm of cryptography, like it's really a mind bender to, you know, to think stuff like that. But I mean, if we can take it down several levels of complexity and just be like, I don't know if you remember that the, I think it was in A Beautiful Mind where he's like, um, got his notepad out and he's, watching the pigeons and he's trying and like they're moving and he's trying to kind of figure out if there's some rhyme or reason to their, the patterns of their movements. And, you know, maybe if there's a group of 20 pigeons, you look at it, it's like, well, no, they're just, you know, one's pursuing food, one's being blown by the wind, all that kind of stuff. Maybe there is pattern there and we're just too incapable of seeing it. But if you like went up a, a order of magnitude, right. And instead now you were 10,000 feet above the earth or whatever, and you were looking at all the different clumps of pigeons in the world and you see, oh, like, well, there's a clear pattern there, you know, there's, I don't know if you've ever seen also those like, you know, whale or bird, uh, migration trackers, you know, and when you see one in the ocean, you just think, oh, it's swimming in the ocean and who knows where it goes. But when they put a little tracker on it, you know, the birds, you know, create a little triangle over North America or whatever their migration path is. And so it just seems like there's, at some level, there's always a pattern. And so if we relate that to whatever process it was that led to the development, the emergence, the creation of human beings, of human consciousness, of this earth, surely there had to have been a, you know, that we have to be the result of some kind of pattern, right? And we know that to some degree, like if we just look at our solar system, there's patterns all over the place. And if, you know, so for life to have developed on earth, like obviously it was in relation to those patterns to some degree, but what, you know, what are those patterns in, re in relation to? And on and on down you go down the line and, uh, you know, where, where, where is the source of patterns? And, you know, perhaps we call that God, you know, perhaps that we call that the benevolent creator that creates order out of chaos for the purpose of love and freedom, for example. So who knows? But, 
and, and, and what does that mean in relation to like the difference between something that we find in the natural world versus something that we create? Or what does that mean for, will we always kind of bring ourselves to the precipice? You know, will we have the capability to destroy ourselves and not because that's, you know, that's the test for ourselves? Or will we have the capability to destroy ourselves and do it? And it's happened many times already, and that's why we don't find anyone in our immediate, you know, cosmic environment. Um, yeah, who, who knows? But in just to circle back to the, the Bitcoin and gold thing for a second, like I, I think it's almost like another way to think of it is, yes, there's the issue of degree of truthfulness. And maybe, again, to your point, like if we figure out a way to make gold, if AI figures out how to, or the, you know, some to make a machine that makes gold, well then it's, it's truthfulness in terms of its absoluteness maybe has become impaired. But even if it doesn't, you know, it's not, yes, the truthfulness and the absoluteness of information is always going to be, be, be valuable, I think. But it's also, like I was saying, the degree to which it can cohere with the uses we have for it. And so you might just think of gold as having like so much latency as to no longer be absolutely truthful. Because in order for us to leverage gold's truth, we, as you know, you know, we need to layer things on top of it. And once we layer fiat or bank or, you know, deposit receipts or whatever on top of gold, I think we're starting to distort the information that it's originally capable of containing and us being able to leverage. And so then it be, you know, that information, because it, it doesn't cohere with our behaviors and the environment we've created for ourselves anymore, it actually its truthfulness becomes less relevant to us. Whereas something that can maintain its absolute truthfulness and have basically no latency in terms of how we want to express our behaviors and our values uh, with one another, it can follow, you know, quote unquote, our behavior wherever we, we might want to go. If I want to, you know, buy something or send something to someone in China or my next door neighbor or whatever, I can leverage that truth and not, pollute, not distort it or, or degrade it anywhere. Maybe that means it's way, way, a way more relevant and important and valuable form of truth. And I think the market, you know, part of this Bitcoin monetizing at this point in our history, if it continues to do so, is a reflection of, at least in part, that, that process or that difference between the two. Yeah, yeah, interesting. You know, when you were talking before about the... Uh kind of that that zooming out and you gave this image of kind of zooming out from the birds and keeping going and into the solar system etc and i thought you know essentially at these greater and greater scales you know perhaps you're getting closer and closer to the ultimate like oneness you know some would call it god or whatever you might want to call that thing you know that that thing which is at the root of all patterns and i guess what we see bitcoin doing in the world and you know gold did this but obviously at a, at a much I'm, I'm imagining it was took, you know, a lot longer and it happened over a much slower period of time. Whereas Bitcoin is this kind of inflection point where we see this organizing process. I think that we'll look back on, you know, Bitcoin's kind of inception and going forward from there. And perhaps you're then able to see patterns. I mean, you can see patterns when you, you look at the mempool, you know, when you look, when you look at it on a techno technological level, but also it seems to have an organization, an organizing um, kind of feature for society generally, right? Because it kind of like realigns various, I guess like it realigns uh, society according to certain principles. And, you know, it brings in incentives that previously were kind of corrupted through fiat money. And 
that is an organizing structure. So perhaps things which create patterns on big scales, you could consider those things to be the most important things in the world. You know, what creates patterns on the largest scales, organizing patterns, and Bitcoin is one of those. And maybe that's something which, you know, I'm not saying that that is is God, but that's something which people tend to ascribe God-like characteristics to in their own perception. I totally agree. And I think what makes that case even stronger is is that the reason why that pattern is able to be created and sustained, like to be a successful pattern, you might say. And I think the reason why is because it's cohering with the highest fidelity to the pattern above it, let's say, right? It's, it's like, it's, uh, mm. it's like pegging into it in, in some sense, right? Or tethered, you know, it's tethered into it. And that's why it can be successful. It's like, it's transmuting whatever that organizing principle was in one domain into another one. So yes, the form looks different, but the reason why it's able to create a generative, sustainable, you know, let's say beneficial pattern in a new domain is because it's cohering in some way that we probably don't understand with the pattern in which it's nestled. And again, do we want to call that thread, you know, that, that thing that they're all connected to via, is that kind of like the principle of God, the principle of order, the principle of truth and absoluteness? Kind of, you know, like I, it's an interesting thought, you know, and, 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 and it is the, yeah. is the reason why Bitcoin is able to do that. Like it is the reason why it's able to generate the, the type of pattern that you mentioned is because, because its degree of truthfulness permits it to connect to that more generative or not more, but to it's the same type of pattern in another domain or scale. Again, one that we're not privy to, let's say, but is it, is it because of its truthfulness that it, it coheres so well to that and, and can borrow the, the energy or the sustainability from patterns beyond it and just transmute them basically into another domain of experience or existence? Maybe. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I guess for people who have kind of had deep psychedelic experiences as well, that's almost a good descriptor for that as well you feel like you are part of a greater kind of tapestry that you are you are part of this almost like an orchestra and everything around you can appear to be kind of uh, you know almost dancing to the exact same tune you know this, this there's there's a kind of um a shared experience that's going going on and everything else is a part of it but you're also a part of it too you know you're also kind of in that and you know i wonder whether that is actually a good descriptor generally for, you know, kind of alignment in a way, you know, be, being alignment with something that's greater than yourself that you also have no specific control over. You feel like it's being kind of like brought down to you. You're, you're participating in it, but you are not the controller of it. But the more that you align to it, the more blissful your experience is. And um, I guess things that can be put in that box to whatever degree, and, you know, some of them are more abstract than others like Bitcoin, but psychedelic experience for me, you know, that's something which is much more of a real visceral thing you can experience, but they're kind of, they're on the same lines, you know, they're, they're, they're part of the same set of things, which I would say are those experiences, which cause transformations within uh, individuals and like, um, on a wider scale as well. Totally agree. And I, I think this goes back to the point about how ancients and alchemists and, you know, different forms of medicine, even have had a different perspective on things because 
I agree with what you're saying. And I also think that it's, it's probably always the same principles that occur, you know, whichever pattern, whichever experience we're talking about. So in the case of psychedelics, how is it you access that unit of loving awareness or consciousness when you're in that state? In my opinion, you have to get rid of the distortion that is your own, you know, self tethered thoughts, right? Your ego death, let's say, right? So you have to let go of all the, that information that's keeping you from that unit of consciousness. And so once you do that, once you dial that down or get rid of it, then the information is truthful. It's, it's pristine. You just become like a vessel for, for the mm-hmm. exchange mm-hmm. of that stuff. But you had to get rid of the so-called false or distortive information first. And if we look at something like Bitcoin, like what permits it to have one to operate as it does, what makes it so special, what causes people to act in relation to it the way they are, what causes people to be so transformed when they, when they understand it better. I think, again, it's that principle that the truer the information, the more valuable it is, the more it connects you to everything in any domain of existence, the, the personal, the social, the natural, the, the metaphysical, so it's like this recurrence of these same principles. It's like when you get rid of the distortion and you have the truer the information is, the more it connects you to everything. And I, I think the more it liberates you. So in the psychedelic experience, you know, you have that ego death experience and you connect to whatever that energy or spirit or source is. And it, is there a better word describe it, to describe it, but liberating, right? It's just that I, I can't think of a better word. And I think... We find this in the theological texts as, as well all the time. The truth shall set you free. Bitcoin is another great example of it. It is a profound, absolute, inviolable truth. What is the effect of that? Not just in the one that we've been saying, like on a personal level, where we're set free from our own despair and hopelessness, but also mechanically, if you will, or systemically, it sets us free from the system of monetary fiat you know, regime that the world has been suffering under for so long and even pre-fiat it's it, it sets us free from you know the violation of property that you know characterizes history and all that kind of stuff so we always come back to this principle where the truth and to the degree something is truthful it sets you free whatever domain we're talking about and again the reason why i bring up the the alchemist and the ancients perspective on things is because what I'm, I guess what I'm referring to is like a type of coherence. Like maybe we're talking about totally different things, but there's a uniting principle between them. And I, I feel like the worldview of people, some people in, in, in those times and less so in today's materialist secular world, they appreciated and saw meaning in the coherence and the shared principles between things. And so they would, they would look, they'd be like, okay, there, there seems like there's a shared principle here. What's the meaning of that? They wouldn't just say, hey, I looked under this under a microscope and it was just XYZ molecule and I looked under this and it was ABC molecule. So they're totally unrelated and, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't look for any connection between them. I think, you know, the world was, well, more animated with spirit, I guess, back then. Because what do you call a principle that lies behind your, what do you call a shared principle that lies behind certain things? And it animates them in a certain way. I mean, I think, again, spirit is probably a pretty good word for that. So maybe the emergence of Bitcoin and 
everyone trying to grapple with it and even those who don't but end up you know by default just winding up in a system that uses it let's say in 100 or 200 or whatever years maybe that will inspire or inculcate a worldview that's more receptive to a broader view on what this thing we call consciousness life and the world actually is and it will emerge from the dark ages of hardcore materialism that you know possibly you could make an argument we're in right now yeah yeah it's almost like another pillar isn't it it's like you know you don't necessarily you know for, for some people like bitcoin is a very very key pillar and maybe that's the thing for them that they needed to to have a kind of closer connection to this kind of thing that we're talking about for other people maybe it's psychedelics like i, I don't necessarily want to say that bitcoin is the most important thing but i definitely think it is one of the several things that you know you can kind of really theorize about and look at and you know as you say it, it changes um people on an on an individual level like pretty profoundly and uh and like you say i think that the conversation we've had here definitely like just demonstrates or i hope demonstrates at least it does to me and i've definitely thought more deeply about this just those connections those shared connections between these things which are transformational you know um psychedelics bitcoin you know, religion and, you know, even gold for the people. I guess I wouldn't necessarily put gold in that category today, but certainly I could imagine, you know, thousands of years ago, that would be the case. I think, you know, especially from the Bitcoiners that are religious crowd, you know, that have a particular faith, who, again, I have the utmost respect for, and, you know, I have a ton of respect for religions. And, you know, again, hopefully my perspective will be more, uh, clear by the time I finish the book, but a lot of them will say something like, you know, you're making an idol out of Bitcoin, you know, and we've been warned against false idols and stuff like that. Now, if I would just wanted to be cheeky with language, you might say, well, it's not a false idol. It's a true idol, right? It's because it's, it's nothing but truth really. But more importantly, because I think even for the non-religious people, for some, you know, maybe for many to, to varying degrees, but there is a risk of as you said, like you don't think Bitcoin's the most important or most valuable thing. And um, I would agree. And it's important not to let it, not to make an idol out of it, you know, in kind of the vein of the warnings that you get in, in theolo you know, religious texts. But I do think what it does do and what we've been discussing this whole time is it's kind of like a spiritual implement. Not only, I mean, it's, a, the, you know, great money and it's going to, if it continues... Perhaps it'll do the things that we've been discussing it can do in terms of its potential for society and all that kind of stuff. But look how much it's causing us to say and to, or rather to ask ourselves, why is this so valuable? Why is this so unique? Why is this so meaningful? And the answer isn't just because Bitcoin and therefore, you know, make Bitcoin your God. It's because Bitcoin represents what I think are the true eternal or divine principles. I think it represents the notion of truth. I think it represents the notion of fairness, equality, union, and love. So those are the things that I think we should worship if we're going to worship anything. Not the particular instantiation, but the thing, the spirit that gives it life the spirit that vivifies it, mm. the, the, the spirit and the value and the meaning behind, which allows it to be what it is. And so in that, in that sense, and this is probably a horrible contentious comment to, to end this little bit on, but like, 
in that sense, it's kind of akin to the spirit taking form, right? It's the spirit made flesh. And this is a concept that obviously is central to the Christian faith, but it's been discussed in, you know, by the Neoplatonists and several others, I'm sure. And it's, it's this idea that the eternal fundamental absolute principles, the most generative, you know, God, basically, right? Like the most valuable thing, the things that we should and rightfully do value the most, they take sometimes to varying degrees form in things. And we, we benefit from that because it gives us a clearer picture of them. It helps us use and interact with them better. It helps us apply them to ourselves and apply them in and to our lives better. And it's not wrong to leverage or use it to that degree. But to your point, and, and I think because Bitcoin is so unique and such a paradigm sh you know, shift and because it's helping people so much, maybe there's a risk that people idolize the thing and not the, the thing that allows the thing to be the thing, right? Not, not the, the, the thing behind the thing. And I do think the thing behind the thing is truth, freedom, and love. And maybe they're all t wrapped up together in the notion of God. But I do think that's why Bitcoin is valuable because it's propagating and it's animating those things into the intersubjective world. Mm -hmm. And so what that means, who the hell knows, but. No, I, I agree. And I think that, you know, some people do a similar thing with psychedelics. I know that are like a lot of people who are kind of more along the traditional, I guess, more conservative Christians or, or some, maybe perhaps some other faiths. They'll say, you know, when it comes to psychedelics, oh, you know, we shouldn't be worshipping these things. We shouldn't be worshipping the material by doing like plant medicines and this, that and the other thing. And it's like, or even necessarily the experience that we shouldn't be worshipping the experience you have when you're on it. But I, I always kind of think, well, that's not really what you're, what you're worshipping. Well, worshipping is probably like the wrong term, but that's not what you're valuing out of it. One of the most um, significant things is that you're actually getting a touch with something which is completely transcendent you know that you can't understand whatsoever and you're you're getting a glimpse into something that you feel is larger than yourself that you're saying okay i can see that there's something here there's something that's forming the tapestry of the world which is beyond my comprehension and that thing is incredibly powerful and you know i think there's no reason that you can't be you know a, a complete psychonaut and also be religious to me they're they're totally they're they're different concepts and actually they're both trying to get to the same thing anyway which is what's behind everything you know so uh yeah i think you articulate that well you know that's also what bitcoin is doing you're not worshiping a currency or money or anything like this what you're actually doing is saying this thing is giving me a, a touch with something higher it's bringing about you know very like positive values in myself with other people in terms of our interrelational kind of connections and if this thing is able to do it, what's behind it, you know, and then you start going down that rabbit hole. Um, so yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that's a good way to um, to kind of round up that that section. So one thing before I kind of close this off, because you've been, you know, super generous with your time. So I really appreciate you coming on and uh, and really going quite deep into these things. Where do you think we're going? I just want to kind of like ask you this more, more generally, like what are your kind of current thoughts about, I guess the trajectory of the world and you know are you like excited and optimistic and about everything that's happening because you know the world is changing like in so many respects obviously not just in terms of bitcoin really kind of coming into its well i guess every day just becoming more and more interesting and exciting and and developing but also you know we've got things going on with ai but then at the same time you've got like huge assaults going on on our freedom around the world and things like that and this you know this kind of the the overhang of everything that happened with, with COVID and stuff. I, I'm just interested to know just, I guess, really, really on a, on a broad um, general level. Like, 
are you excited and you know what are the things that you are excited about and yeah what, what are your general thoughts about the world well i guess on a on a micro level um and I, th- we, I think we did a hodl hang pod on this like late 2022 maybe fall of 2022 like post covid and then you know ukraine and russia war and covid obviously had a massive influence on this because a lot of people you know before that most people just went along with with things you know and you go to your job and you have your family and you know you don't want to upset the apple car what's the point anyways and whatever you just want to relax when you have free time and people didn't really think about they didn't really think about politics to be frank you know they picked their person and then maybe they were even passionate about it but they didn't think about what principles are behind this? Just exactly what we were talking about with, with Bitcoin just now. Like, what are the principles behind the American experiment? Right? What are the principles enshrined in their founding documents? Because that's what's important. And that's what you're supposed to be attempting to maintain a coherence with and uphold. Not, you know, red racist, blue socialists. Like, that's, that's ridiculous. And you're just, it's just pure emotional tribalism at that point. What, what, what's, you know, why is it that those, those principles that they tried to enshrine in, in those founding documents, like, why are they important? It's the exact same question that we were just talking about with Bitcoin. And again, I think you, you would trace them to something akin to because they're eternal and divine principles. And so they tried to figure out an architecture where they could be offered to as many people as possible or offered to the American people and preserved to the extent possible. Now, you might be highly critical of the track record and say they didn't do, you know, things went off the rails at some point. Um, but I guess my point is just that um, thing, COVID was such a departure. Now, for a lot of people, they still just ate it and gulped it up. And which, you know, I was really frustrated for a time during COVID because I would think that if you're ever going to get a warning sign flashing saying like, you're going down a really dark and dangerous road. Now's the time to wake up and give a damn. Now's the time, you know, this one of the things I would say around dinner tables is like, what is your line in the sand? And because if you don't have one, you're going to keep redrawing, you know, you're just going to keep getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back until, you know, you're somewhere that you never thought you would be. But if you draw that line in the sand, it means you're going to have to act if it's violated. Right. And no, nobody wants to do that because nobody wants to take on the, the fear and the anxiety and the work of, of acting, whatever that might have meant, quitting your job, moving countries, like whatever. And I, you know, I was frustrated because so many people around me, you know, they bitch and moan about whatever lockdowns and this and that closed businesses, but nothing beyond it and continuing, continuing to trust the sources in the media and the government and big business that were propagating, you know, what I knew at the time were dishonest and agenda driven and and ignorance and incompetence driven. But and now it's coming to light, you know, that that is actually coming to light, you know, in, in the broader sphere. But I was just super frustrated and, and I had to, you know, figure out a way to let go of that because, you know, and I talk about it on podcasts and it's just you know, at the end of the day, like, yes, it's good to bring light to egregious things that are happening and 
yes, you want to try to find solutions and yes, it's good to raise awareness and yes, it's good to have conversations like the one we've just been having about what is the role of principles in our lives? Why are they a thing? Why are they enshrined in money in founding documents? Why? Surely it's because they're important, right? And if you just kick out those pillars willy-nilly because you're afraid or you don't know any better, then you should expect really bad things to happen because those principles, back to the point about the generating of patterns, those principles are what generates patterns. You kick them out and something fills the vacuum and you get a way worse pattern, you know, worse in terms of everything, you know? And so there's a value in that, but I just, I felt I was being consumed by the, my frustration with it all. And so I, you know, you, you kind of have to come to grips. Like it is what it is. You, you know, sounds kind of cheesy, but like I made an intentional effort to try to focus on, try to be positive, right? Try to focus on the good stuff that was happening. Cause even so there was lots of good stuff. And now I think back to that point about the podcast we had in late 2022, it seemed to me like there was a bit, bit of a pendulum swing right up until that, like the, the clown world idiocy, incompetence, whatever you want to call it was just maxing out on all, all levels. And I feel like then and even more now and you know many factors involved the continued emergence of bitcoin the big one was obviously elon's purchase of x whatever you think about elon or x or permission social media or whatever those sorts of either trends or big courageous actions in support of the principle that is freedom let's say in this case freedom of speech um, i think have had big effects and so that combined with you know a certainly a portion of the population more so than prior for whom the COVID experience was, you know, it just, it shook their trust in institutions. It, it revealed to them how incompetent and how corrupt and how, you know, little freedom ultimately push comes to shove they may have when they're going to be locked in their homes or told they can't get on a plane or that kind of stuff. And you had responses to it, obviously, right? Like the trucker protests and all the things ongoing. So my, I say all this to say I'm very excited right now because I think there's a lot of really positive things happening. Now, they might be little tiny glimmers or sparks in like still a, a, a big dark arena, but at least they're happening. And what's, what's amazing is like when the sparks are good, they have a lot more force, you know? And, and when you see someone be do something courageous, make a big sacrifice. You know, spending money is obviously a, a sacrifice. And so when someone spends $44 billion, I know he had a cohort of investors or whatever, but punchline being when someone makes that kind of sacrifice, at least in part, so that people can speak freely, that's a powerful thing. It's, it's like, you know, you take that all the way to the to the end and it's the idea of the martyr, right? So basically, you know, wherever it's occurred, but someone will be killed because they won't lie or they won't, you know, they won't cheat or they won't renounce their religion, for example. And so it's like, it's so powerful because, wow, you're holding up the principle of honesty or truthfulness or integrity or of your God, even at the expense of, and therefore beyond your own life. And how, like, how is that? Is there any other is there any greater representation that you really have subordinated yourself to that more eternal principle? 
right? And so like we talk about these motives for behavior, these principles that are, that we maybe would aspire to be guided by. It's like, well, I, you know, I think truth is like a foundational divine principle and I don't want to participate in violating it. But if somebody had a gun to my head and said, hey, you got to lie to these people and it's going to hurt them this much or I'm going to shoot you, then push comes to shove, right? We're, we're, how much have you really, you know, committed yourself, subordinated yourself to those principles versus the ones that make you feel good, safe, secure, wealthy, whatever. And um, we're getting, I think, more examples of, to put it simply, principled behavior these days, you know, or at least behavior that seems to be valuing virtue and principles more than it did, you know, but a few years ago. And that's really encouraging. And then because, you know, when you layer on, and, and again, we don't, we don't know how all this bubbles up. So maybe all this is in response to Bitcoin emerging in the world. You know, it doesn't seem like it, right? Because so many few, you know, not that many people have adopted it or use it or whatever. But how are we supposed to judge all the different ways that this form of truth emerging in the world might affect things? It might affect people, you know, little butterfly effects on, on things. Who knows? So to answer your question, COVID was, was very frustrating. But now I feel like there's a lot of really good things happening. And uh, I think courage is contagious. And, you know, it takes courage to speak up at your family dinner table, or it takes courage to speak up amongst your friends, or it takes courage to quit your job because you're not able to be yourself or because they're making you do something you don't agree with. And um, I, I guess I see more instances of that. And then I also see more interest in these themes that we've been discussing today. Philosophy, theology, religion, you know, truth, like these big concepts that seem to be kind of left in the, in the closet drawer for a long time in society. I like, they, they seem to be reemerging now. And, you know, there's probably going to be a lot of missteps and a lot of you know, it's messy, right? It's always going to be, everything's always going to be messy, but it seems to me a good thing that, that people are talking about these things and determining how and to what degree they should orient their lives by them. You know, so I, I'm super excited. And then, you know, as, as a final overarching thing, it's like, and psychedelics have been integral in this, I would say for me, but it's like, at some point you have to just accept you know, you have to do what you think is most right. And then if we blow ourselves up in a nuclear holocaust five years from now, or if we end up populating the galaxy a hundred years hence, you kind of have to be okay or at peace with, with either outcome. You know, you, again, like that's, it's not an apathetic or, or, or whatever attitude. I mean, I think it's incumbent on all of us to be as representative and work toward what we deem to be most good and meaningful and valuable as we possibly can. And we probably all fall short of that because life kind of wears you down a bit and you forget what you're trying to aspire to. But I do think we all have that responsibility. But in the back, I don't think you can be married to an outcome based on, on your inputs there. If we don't make it, we don't make it. If we do, we do. Either way, it's better if we all try to I know it's corny, but be better versions of ourselves and, and align ourselves with the principles that we think are most eternal and good and beneficial. And so, you know, that's, that's how I feel.
Awesome, John. Yeah, um, that was that was great. Yeah, I really appreciate those um, those thoughts. Normally, I actually reserve a bit at the end to just kind of open up the floor for like a final kind of uh, parting words and a positive message. But you've just nailed it right there, so uh, I won't ask that of you. But um, yeah, thanks a lot, man. Really for for coming on. This has been a you know an awesome conversation. As I said to you, like privately, your your podcast. It's, it's absolutely awesome. You know, like Bitcoin rapid fire was absolutely um, pivotal for me. Like I, uh, it, it really kind of helped my understanding in Bitcoin and, um, you know, I've been following it for ages and uh, really enjoying the work you've been doing. And it's been great to see kind of your journey there as well and, and kind of like your your thoughts evolve. So like keep up the great work. Do you want to just um, let my audience know kind of where to find you and about the work you're doing and also, I guess, about the, the book you're writing as well and when that's going to be out? And uh, if you do have any other final thoughts, feel free to uh, share those as well. But I'll let you uh, lead this one out. But yeah, th- thanks again, John, for coming on. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed the conversation. Glad you're you're doing this. I'm always super supportive of, you know, some people are like, oh, let's, you know, what we need is another podcast. But I think we actually do. You know, it's great when people express themselves and there's so many perspectives and so many different ways of coming at things in the world and so, you know, different forms of communication appeal to different people. You know, there's no one size fits all. And I think it's great when these things are done out in the open. And actually, you know, part of the reason why I started it, because you mentioned, you know, it's been interesting to see, I guess, my my development over the, the years or whatever. But that was something that I was, you know, very keenly aware of at the beginning. And I it was part of the motivation of, of doing the podcast because I wanted my... I wanted my journey of trying to understand this stuff better to be out in the open so that it like there was a a gravity to it so that like it put a little bit of pressure on me not to just phone it in and not to just act like, you know, I'm interested, but it, it actually has to graph to who I am and I guess something akin to what I'm trying to become. And I knew at the beginning, like it would be interesting to, see how both my thinking and then my, you know, character and my behavior and all that kind of stuff would evolve over the course of time of like, you know, putting these, putting myself out there effectively. And so, um, you know, I, I expect if we have this conversation in, you know, three or four or five years, you and I will both be probably substantially different than we are today, hopefully closer to that, you know, ideal that we may be aspiring to and the the things that we want to, uh, dedicate ourselves to. But, um, but yeah, it's, I, I totally recommend it because it's, it's really easy to give yourself a pass when you do everything privately and behind closed doors and when you're just like, when there's no audience watching because it's easy to hide. It's easy to hide your bullshit. But when people are watching you for several hours a week or whatever, it's way harder to hide, you know, because, you know, people pick up on things and it's, you know, yeah, it's just harder to hide. And so you have to be more honest with yourself. And that I think is very helpful for the, the process of, one's own development. So, but yeah, for anyone who wants to get it, get at me, John K. Vallis is my Twitter handle and I don't do much with the podcast website. It basically just hosts the episodes and that kind of thing, but it's bitcoinrapidfire.com and uh, book title and, and release date are, are TBD. I have something in mind, but I don't want to release it out there yet. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I'll, I'll let you know when I know more. But I appreciate the, the, the time and the chat and I look forward to doing it again sometime. Yeah, thanks. Definitely want to do it again and uh, good luck with the book. Thank you, brother. See ya. See ya.